0: And welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here today. Happy Valentine's Day. We are in a series called Happily Even After. And we've been going through the book of Ruth, which has been kind of driving us through the series. Uh, and we've been talking about that God has a plan for your love life. And today we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. And we're, the, the title of today's message is Designer Sex. Yeah, and you may be going, wait a minute. I'm in a church, right? And they just said the S word. And we are talking about that today because it's hard to escape anywhere in our culture that you can't find, you hear talking about sex. It's in our TV, movies, music is inundated with it, social media, our peers, our parents, our schools, our government. It's everywhere. All these voices saying this is what it's all about, but. Really, God has a lot to say about sex. And, and above all other voices, we should be listening to his because he alone is the designer of it. So t- today, our goal is not to be provocative. Our goal today is to uncover this truth. Here's our big idea for today, that who we listen to when it comes to sex will determine the success of our relationships. And we said last week that there is no perfect relationship, that there is no such thing as happily ever after. But who we listen to when it comes to sex will help determine our increase or decrease the potential of success in our relationships. And here's how I define success. If you're if you're single and you, you want to be in a relationship, you want to date, and you want that to go someplace, maybe even lead to marriage, and you want to have a marriage that is good and powerful, and you want to be married to your best friend, and you want to have a, li- a love life that is what, th- just what you, you, you've dreamed of, and you want to have a marriage that will last for a lifetime. We want that for you as a church, and even more importantly, God wants that for you. But it all begins with us answering that question that we all have to answer, who are we going to listen to? And there's really only two options. Are we going to listen to God, the designer and the creator of sex, or are we going to listen to the culture? And this is why I think the church needs and must talk about this because If we're not going to be one shouting out God's truth that he has a plan for our love life, who will? And I don't know uh, why, but there's so many churches who will avoid talking about sex at all costs. I mean, whether it's, they'll avoid it like they're going, avoiding the Zika virus or something. And they are not going to talk about it because it makes people uncomfortable or because people are going to get offended or maybe they even hold on to this old Victorian-era belief. And Maybe you've come from a church like this, and you've heard a, a teacher or a preacher talk about this. Maybe your parents, that sex is dirty, it's, it's shameful, and it's evil. So only you have to save that for your marriage and the one you love. That's a conflicting message right there, I think, somewhere in that. But you've heard that, right? And there are churches out there who say that, it, that it's shameful. They believe that God created sex, but they say that it's dirty, it's shameful, it's evil, or that God only created it for one purpose, and that's procreation. But I'm here to say one thing I don't want to call anything that God created dirty or shameful or evil. And Second of all, if, if you're married and you actually believe this, you ain't doing it right. All right? I'm going to say it. All right? So it is good. It is powerful. It is good. It is a worshipful experience. It is good. All right? Listen. This is going to be some fun, I today. All right? but. God created marriage to be in a covenant relationship between one man, one woman, for the good to the grave commitment. That's what God designed sex to be. So we're going to talk about it today in Ruth chapter 3. You can turn in your Bibles or Bible apps there. We're going to watch as Ruth and Boaz go to another stage in their relationship, and they're going to come with the same choice. Who am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to God, or am I going to listen To other voices. Here's a quick recap. If you're just now joining us, maybe the first time you've been here, you're kind of new to the series. The Book of Ruth opens up in a season of the nation of Israel where they're not being led by the kings, not yet. They're being led by judges. And the Bible says that during this season of the nation of Israel, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They kind of were making up truth. As they went along, they were making up morality as they went along, even sexual morality. And so what God did is he called, trying to call his people back to himself, he, he, he sent a famine on their, on their land. And a guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they tried to escape the famine by going to a foreign country called Moab. And in Moab, they allowed their two sons to marry foreign women, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then tragedy strikes their family. Elimelech dies. The two sons die. And Naomi is left with just two daughters-in-law. And she is exceedingly bitter, the Bible says. She, just, she thinks God is mad at her and angry with her. And she hears that the famine has now been lifted back in Bethlehem, back in Israel. And so she decides to go back home. Well, Orpah... One of her daughters-in-law says, I'm going to stay back in Moab. I'm going to hang back with my mom and dad. I'm going to follow our gods. But Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow you. I follow your God now, the the God of Israel. And so they come back, and they have nothing. Ruth starts working as a gleaner in the barley fields during harvest season. And her first day on the job, as she's trying to provide for herself, she's trying to provide for her mother-in-law, she meets this guy, the owner of the field in which she finds herself in. He is a man of excellent character. He's a godly man. He is a man, the Bible says, he's worthy. And so Boaz, he comes up to her and says, listen, I want you, Ruth, to come back to my field every single day. I want you to glean in my fields. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. And that's kind of where we left the story off. Their first date, if you will, their first encounter. Well, now we're going to catch up to where they're at today. And what happens in the story, when Ruth comes back from the field on her very first day, Naomi, she's still bitter. She's still angry. I, I, I imagine her still still in bed. You know, she doesn't even have the will to get out of bed. And she hears Ruth come in the door, and she kind of hollers out, well, how'd it go? Where did you, you find to work today? And Ruth... I mean, she's like floating into the house, right? Kind of like Buddy the Elf, where he says, I'm in love, and I'm love. I don't care who knows it, right? And she's just walking in, just light as, a, light as the air. And she says, listen, I met this guy. I'm working at this guy's field. He's so kind to me. He's handsome. He's this and that. His name is Boaz, And all of a sudden, I want you to watch what happens to Naomi as soon as Ruth drops this name. In chapter two, verse twenty, Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Exclamation point. Who is this woman? I mean, for the last two chapters, she's been, the darkness has been over her. God is angry at me. His fist is against me. But just by hearing the word Boaz, she like pops out of bed and she is, may the Lord bless everyone. This is great. The good times are here again. And she says to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is where it gets a little Kentucky. Um, All right, we got to explain something. So the, the, the sun is now shining in Naomi's life because of an ancient Israelite custom, all right? And what happens is if you were an Israelite husband and you were to die and you did not have a son, your widow was not allowed to marry outside the family. She had to marry your closest relative. If you had a brother, it had to be your brother, so that he could provide her a son and that his family name, the, the deceased husband, his family line would continue on. And if let's say if it was a brother, and she came to the brother and says, listen, you, you know, I'm coming to you because you are my redeemer. You're supposed to be this guy. And if he says no, it was a dishonorable thing. And so she would have to go down the line to the next of kin. You know, now it's your, And finally, when she would find someone to marry her and to give her a son, that was called the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi, she hears Ruth go, Boaz. And Naomi pops up going, that is one of our redeemers. It's it's changing everything. So now we come into chapter 3. And a few weeks have gone by since their first encounter in the field. They, They met each other, but there's been no advancement in the relationship over these last few weeks. Ruth goes home every single day from working in the field and goes to her phone and waits for him to call, waits for him to text, but nothing. God has brought these two together, but neither are making a move. But Naomi, mom-in-law, she's dreaming again. Right, she, she sees that God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he has been working in the wings of her life, and that she that God has been lining up Boaz and Ruth, kind of setting the stage for the next scene for these two. But these crazy kids, they need a little nudge. So in comes Naomi. She's going to do the nudging. Now listen, she starts singing, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Listen, I am not a big fan of of setting people up. All right. I grew up in the church. I, I was single all my twenties and I had a lot of little old ladies, a lot of moms going, Hey, you know, my daughter, you know, my granddaughter, it it never worked out. And that was awful. All right. Don't do that. And I would never be a guy to try to set someone up. Um, except for maybe Zach, Zach would be good. Um, and yeah, uh, he's single ladies. Uh, the, when I was in college, when I was in college, I, I don't know what got into me. I was sitting next to my friend Brandon during intramural basketball. Our team was on a break. And, you know, he's, he's quiet. He's a good guy. And I said, I don't know what got into me. Because I looked up in the balcony, and there was this gal named Amy. And she also was just sweet as could be. Very nice. Very sweet. And I said, Brandon, you see Amy up there? What do you think about her? He goes, oh, yeah, she's awesome. I said, okay, hang on. And I go up to the balcony... And, I, and I, I said, Amy, see that guy down there uh, sitting on the, on the sidelines? That's Brandon. What do you think about him? If he asked you out, would you go out with him? Oh, yeah, I would definitely go out with him. He's very cute. And that's my best voice. And, and she, she went down downstairs. And I went downstairs. And I said, Brandon, you got to call her. She, just trust me on this. He calls her that night. They have their first date. A year later, they're married. And 20 years later today they are still married, have three beautiful kids, and not one of them is named after me. What is that about? I mean, in the matchmaking thing, I am batting a 1,000. I mean, Christian Mingle and FarmersOnly.com have nothing on me. All right? But Naomi says to Ruth, Listen, sweetie, you got to make a move. Harvest season is just about over. It's just about done your job as a gleaner where you're going to see Boaz every single day. It's done. He it's, it's winnowing season right now. Boaz is in the threshing floor. He's winnowing the barley. That's where he's going to be tonight. And so you need to make a move. Here's what you're going to do. Take it from your old, old Naomi here. I've been around the block. You need to bathe. It's in the Bible. You need to bathe. Every time Boaz sees you, you're sweaty, you're dirty, you've been working in the field, your hair's up in a ponytail, you need to take a shower. Go shower, go see your stylist, go get a mani-pedi, go get your tanning on, go get your makeup on, and you need to get out there. Now, you ladies may be like, wait a minute, that's not right. Ruth shouldn't be chasing after a guy. I'm not saying you need to chase after a guy, but sometimes you need to get in their way. Because we guys aren't the brightest. All right, sometimes we need a little bit of help. Yeah, you can get applaud that. So Naomi has this plan. She says, you need to get ready, get all dolled up. And then you need to, walk, go, to the, go to the threshing floor. That's where Boaz is going to be. Wait until he's done eating chicken wings and drinking with his buddies. And he's going to go to bed. Watch where he goes to sleep. And I want you to sneak in. And I want you good, all looking good. And I want you to lie down. At his feet, he will tell you what to do next. Now, if you're in a small group here at North Terrace, one of our NT groups, we have about 400 people in small groups right now. And if you're not in a small group, you need to get in a small group. In your small group this week, we're going to be talking about Ruth 3, going a little deeper with your discussion guide. And you're going to have this question that you're going to discuss. What you think about Naomi's strategy because it's a little risky, isn't it? I mean, telling this single gal to get all dolled up, to sneak in at the middle of the night, to lie down next to this guy. I mean, this situation doesn't usually end in God-honoring moments. And yet, I love what chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 says. Is when Boaz had eaten and drunk. And listen, that doesn't mean he's drunk. It just means he had been drinking with his friends. And his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Why is he laying down here? Why is he sleeping here? Because the the, the harvest season is now over. They've winnowed the barley. They've done all this hard work. They've got this whole pile of grain that's ready to go. The last thing they want to do is have thieves and robbers come and take the harvest away. So he's laying there to protect it. That's why he's there. That's why Naomi knows where he'll be. And then Ruth came softly like a ninja, you know, (laughs) covered his feet And lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, I love that, behold, a woman lay at his feet. Who are you, he says. I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings, or your your translation, your Bible, your Bible app might say, spread the corner of your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What is she asking here? There's only one other place in the Bible outside of the book of Ruth that this is talked about. This, this phrase, the corner of your cloak or the, your wings is mentioned. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's actually God describing the nation of Israel as a young woman who he is proposing marriage to. He says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, You were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment, my wings, same Hebrew word, over you. I made my vow to you, entered into a covenant, a promise with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And then, right before this, in in Ruth chapter 2, remember when Boaz and Ruth met in the field and Boaz prayed for her? What did he pray? He said, may the Lord bless you. May he reward you because you have sought his refuge under his wings, under the corner of his garment. So what Ruth is doing here in a very subtle way, she is telling Boaz, when you put that cloak, that corner of your garment over me, I want you to do that. I want you to, to, to know that I want you to be my husband. I want you to commit yourself to me. This is not a marriage proposal. But she is proposing to him that he should propose. And he gets, the, he gets it loud and clear because Boaz is an older man. He's probably middle-aged. Ruth is most likely just out of her, maybe in her, in her young 20s, as a young widow. And Boaz is probably thinking, you know what? She is way out of my league. And he's honored and he's, he's like flattered that she would choose him when she could go out with any younger guy. But here is why Boaz is the man and why any girl, any woman needs to wait for a Boaz and not settle for anything less and why every guy and every man should be like a Boaz Because in this situation, let's think about what, what, what what situation they're in right now. They are there on the threshing floor. They're lying down underneath the stars, and he looks down, and there is this beautiful young woman who has just expressed her desire to be with him, and he desires to be with her. And what does he do? This stops right here. This goes no further. I'm going to protect your honor. I'm going to protect your dignity. I'm going to protect your purity. I'm going to honor God here. I choose to listen to the voice of God, the designer of sex, not to other voices. What would it look like if Boaz had been the normal guy that we see in our culture in the same situation? Would the guy have said, hey, before, we, before we start talking about putting cloaks on, you know, before we talking about the, the spreading of the wings and all that, why don't we just try to live together first for a while? Why don't we just go there before we jump into that kind of a commitment? Or would he even try to manipulate the situation and say, well, what's the big deal? It's just one night. She wants me. I want her. Let's just hook up. Let's have a one-night stand. And it might have been fun, it might have been exciting in the moment, but in the morning, it would, it would have resulted in Ruth taking a walk of shame in the morning back home. And I'm sure there are people here today, as probably the last couple services here, who hear what I'm talking about and going, man, this guy, really? I mean, how old-fashioned is this? It's 2016, it doesn't have to be a big deal. And I get it. Because culture is so loud and and it has so many lies for us to believe, even for Christians who want to do the right thing. We kind of buy in sometimes to all the lies the culture sells. And especially this lie right here, that sex is just physical. What's the big deal? Sex can be just uh, between two people who really care for one another. So what if Boaz and Ruth would have hooked up right then and there? It it wouldn't have made a big deal. It can just be about two people who love one another coming together. I've heard this many times. When Janie and I lived in Miami, Florida, one of our first nights there, we were at a party, and we met a couple, this this husband and wife, and they were getting ready to celebrate their daughter's quinceañera, which is her 15th birthday. And in the Latin culture, that birthday is a big deal for the the woman because it's it's the, the birthday where the child transitions to young womanhood. And they go all out for these parties they call quince's. And they were telling us about their plans for their daughter, and one of the things that they had bought their daughter was this hotel room at a five-star hotel in Miami saying, this is for you and your boyfriend so that you can have your, your first time be special. And they're telling Jay and I this, and I'm going, we're going, we are not in Kansas anymore. right? But why not? It's just physical, What's the big deal today? We live in a culture, the hookup culture where singles and even married couples have hookup buddies, hookup partners where there's, there's no commitment, no strings attached, no emotional baggage. They say no long-term commitment. It's just sex. But is that really helping build a strong foundation for the potential of our relationships in our, in our marriage or our future marriage. Because I think all of us, if you were honest with yourself, you know that this is not to be true. That sex is so much more than just physical. You know why? Because none of us look at our past. None of us look back at our sexual mistakes and laugh at Those. You might look back and remember the time you skipped school and got caught and laugh. You might go back and remember when you lied to your parents and you got busted and busted big time and you can laugh about it now. You might even laugh at the time you found yourself deep in debt and you had to climb your way out and work really hard and you look at the things that you purchased and you're like, I spent how much on a hoverboard that exploded and caught fire? What is that about? But if there's one thing we don't laugh about it is our sexual mistakes. That spring break you wish you could go back and change. That guy or that gal who said that they loved you but afterwards they left because they got exactly what they wanted. That coworker, that married married coworker at work that you just couldn't stop thinking about and then you acted upon that fantasy and it wrecked your marriage and it forever changed your family and your kids. And we don't laugh at those mistakes because there's something so much bigger than just the physical going on. And culture keeps spinning that lie over and again. And when we hear these conflicting messages, we should look, sift through it all to the source. Go to the source, the designer, the creator of it all. Because God says sex is not just physical. He didn't create it that way. It's what the Apostle Paul was telling the, these believers in the ancient city of Corinth who was trying to determine the same things that we're trying to, to go through. This isn't a new battle. I don't care what year it is. This is not a new battle. These Christians lived in a very sexually charged culture in the ancient. I can't go into all the, the details of it right now. Maybe there's not enough time. But there's such a sexually charged culture, and they're going, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to our culture, or are we going to listen to God? And God is saying the sex is so much more than physical. Paul says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? He's saying that when you become a follower of Jesus, when you surrender your life to him, that now the Holy Spirit indwells you, resides in you, that you are now the temple of God. You are so much more than just yourself. There's there's so much more, a bigger part than just simply you. That you are now have a role to play in the story that God is writing. You now have a role to play in his church. You are now the embodiment of Christ in your culture. So that's where Paul starts. But then he says this. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And even if you don't believe in God, you're going, you know what, I'm not with you, Matt, but whatever. But I would definitely still probably agree this part here. Be, yeah, you probably shouldn't join yourself with a prostitute. There's all kinds of problems there. But that's not even what Paul's saying here. He's saying you could take that word out and replace it with any other. Should a person join their body, which is part of Christ with a hookup partner? Never. Should a person join their body with their, their boyfriend or girlfriend, because they really do love each other? Never. Should a person join their body, which is part of Christ to their coworker who they just can't stop thinking about that keeps flirting with them? Never. And here's why. Paul says in verse 16, don't you realize that if a man joins himself with a prostitute, or change out that word for whatever, he becomes one with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. This is where Paul kind of takes the blueprints of rolls amounts. This is God's plan for sex. That God's plan is that sex belongs in a covenant of marriage, one man, one woman, in a good to the grave commitment. And here's why he says this. He, here's why we know this. He's quoting. Genesis here. This is after Adam and Eve have been created, and God says, for this is why a man will leave his husband or his his father and and mother and be joined together with his wife, because the two are united into one. He's saying that sex is the icing on the wedding cake, and that he's saying because we use the word united here which can be translated in the Hebrew to that it is permanently affixed to or glued or bonded together. This is what that means. God has designed sex to be this thing that permanently bonds a husband and wife together. And yet what the culture doesn't know, because the culture doesn't have a clue, but we intuitively know to be true, is that sex reaches into a deeper and more personal part of us than we possibly can imagine. That it, it connects us deep within our soul. That's what God designed it for. So Paul is saying, if you use this gift that God gives us outside of the context of marriage, it will adversely affect how you, you relate to your spouse, how you relate or intimately connect to your spouse or future spouse. Let me illustrate it this way. You've heard it said that there are a thousand uses for duct tape. Here's another one. Um, So God designed sex to permanently bond together a husband and wife that glues us together. It connects us deeply within our souls. And yet culture says, you're crazy. That's so old fashioned. You should have sex before you're married because you need to find out if you're compatible with one another or not. But if we listen to culture and we take something that God has affixed, has joined together, has glued together deep within our souls intimately, and then we tear it apart, whether you even know it or not, a part of you gets left behind with the other person, and a part of them gets left with you. And if we keep bonding together with person after person after person. What happens eventually to this duct tape? Loses its stickiness. And us, we lose our ability to intimately connect, to to have that deep bond with our spouse or future spouse. This is so important. And Paul, he he wanted these people to get it. He wants us to get it. He says, run! Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And I want to take a moment to pause on this for a minute because with the number of people who are in our room right now and the last couple services that we've had, I I know that there's people in this room who know this to be true because you know the pain and you know it to be true. The sex isn't just physical. And whether something was done to you that wasn't your fault, or maybe you have never heard a message from God's word like this before and you wish you would have heard it when you were younger because you would have missed a lot of mistakes there. Because you've joined, you've left pieces of yourself with other people, and you wonder right now, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for my future relationship and my marriage? And the answer is a resounding yes. If you have sexual sin in your past, God, one of the things he does so well, because he is sovereign and he is good, is he loves, he can take and make things new. And he can take the things that we have broken, and restore them. But you've got to do your part. You need to start pursuing after God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to run from sexual sin. If that means you're, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend right now, it ends today. And I don't care if you're 16, or 26, or 36, or 66 God created marriage and sex to be a part of marriage and marriage alone. If you're looking at porn, it ends today. If you're living together, one of you needs to move out. This is serious. Remember what we talked about last week, that that relationships and marriage is not just about It's not about finding the right person. It's about becoming the right person. And the only way we become the right person is when we pursue after God in a relationship with Jesus Christ and claim the good things that he wants for in our lives. We need to to lace up those running shoes like we talked about last week and pursue and run after God and God alone. And when we're running after God, we are running from sexual sin. God didn't create sex to be this unbelievably great and powerful and worshipful and serving and good act and then dangle it out in front of us and say, you can't have this. He wants it for you. He wants you to have a great marriage. He wants you to have the best sex imaginable, but it can only take place within the way that he designed it. And Boaz, he wanted more from Ruth than just a one night stand. He he wanted more. He wanted to build a strong foundation for a thriving relationship. He wanted to honor her. He wanted to honor God. So he tells her this. He says, Listen, I hear you loud and clear. I, I want to be that guy for you. But I'm not the next one in line. Legally, someone else. There's, someone, someone, there's another who needs to be asked first. But here's what I do promise you, Ruth that today, that the sun will not set until I find him and bring this to him. And if he says yes, and he accepts the proposal, then he will marry you, and he will take care of you. But if he says no, and I hope he says no, I will marry you. And I will take care. Either way, you will be taken care of, Naomi will be cared for, and your, your, your late husband's line will still go on. But then he says but as for tonight, you got to stay here tonight because you're looking really fine. And I'm not sending you out into the streets where there's robbers and thieves and all the kind of things. You're going to stay here, but you're going to sleep down there at my feet and I'm sleeping up here and you don't be creeping because this is really, really hard right now. I don't want to do this. And so he said, but in the early morning, when the morning comes up, when the sun comes up that you need to go because I want to protect your purity. I want to protect your dignity. For for Ruth, this is not a walk of shame in this morning. This is a walk of hope because she knows, as she watches that sunrise, that that sun is not going to set until she knows, she knows her future. And she's hoping. She's hoping it's Boaz. We're going to find out next week what happens. You can always look ahead to your Bible if you want. Read it on your own. But next week, we're going to talk about when God writes your love story. But here's what I want to wrap up with. As Paul says that we should run from sexual sin, right after that, he says, you do not belong to yourself. He says, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. And that's what I would challenge you with right now, too. Is you are not your own. God has purchased you with the highest of cost. And that was his son, Jesus, that he sent to die on a cross to take all of your sin, all of my sin, including sexual sin. He died for it. He took our sin and our pain and our guilt and threw it as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers it no more. But you need to come to Christ. You need to follow him, pursue after God through a relationship with Jesus. Have you done it? Because he has so much more in store for you than you can possibly imagine. Maybe you've tried to date, you've tried marriage, you've done it all on your own. God says, I have a plan for you. I, it's not just to give you eternal life. That's awesome. But to have life and have it to the fullest today. If you have a decision you want to make for Jesus, you can do it a couple of ways. One is you can come forward during our decision, decision song. You can write it on your connection card. We'll call you this week if you want to talk more in private. Or you can catch us after church and come find me, come find Chris, one of our other ministers, one of our elders, and say, listen, I'd love to talk more about becoming a follower of Jesus or come to discovery class. But you need to pursue after God. He wants so much more for you, not just for your dating life, but for your life than you can imagine. Would you stand where you are? We're going to sing this song of decision. If you have a decision to make today, make it boldly. Here we go.